This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Good morning, Jan. A busy morning. It is a busy morning. You've got poetry and I've got surgery. Ah, I've got John Kinsella and the first volume of his collected works. There are going to be three in all. And this one's called The Ascension of Sheep. So here we go. It is difficult to encapsulate a writer's voice in an anthology, more so when we have someone as prolific as John Kinsella. But University of Western Australia Publishing has begun such a task in The Ascension of Sheep Collected Poems. So, John, welcome back to 3CR. Nice to be with you, David. Always good. You've been prolific, John. This is only volume one covering 1980 to 2005. It's been quite a life of writing. Yeah, I I mean, I started writing as a small child. Um, My mum was a poet, so that's what was in the house. So from about the age of, I suppose, four, I started making poems. This book, of course, goes from uh, 1980 to 2005, So the first 25 years of my publishing life, this goes from when I'm about 17 on for the next 25 years. That's volume one. Volume two, which comes out early next year, goes from 2005 to 2014. And then the final volume, which comes out the year after, will be from 2014 to 2022. Just to give the listener a bit of an indication, I'm looking at page 804 of this volume. It speaks to the problem we have because we're only going to be able to dip one small toe into what is an Atlantic of works. And I'm going to begin, I've just picked one here, Pillars of Salt. We always look back, attracted by that feeling of having been there before, the roads sinking, the soil weeping, scab on scab lifted, fences sunk to gullies, catching the garbage of paddocks, strainers blocked by stubble and machinery and the rungs of collapsed rainwater tanks, and maybe the chimney and fireplace of a corroded farmhouse, once the guts of the storm, now a salty trinket. Now, there are several other stanzas to be read there, but you've been able to encapsulate the landscape uh, first and foremost in in your portrayal of what's there. It seems to be one of the uh, major inspirations, Australian landscape. Yeah, well, where where I'm speaking from now is sort of uh, what they call Wheat Belt Western Australia, which, as we know, is a kind of colonial construct anyway, but it's the the vast wheat-growing areas of Western Australia. A lot of the vegetation cleared. In fact, only 3% of the original vegetation left. Um, And so what I'm very interested in articulating are the problems of especially European agriculture and the impact on the country, um, the kind of issue of, uh, you know, being stolen land, dispossession of uh, Indigenous peoples, and how, um, as someone who has a colonial kind of heritage, mid-19th century Irish, you know, coming to escape English colonisation, become colonisers themselves, how, how you talk about that and how you, how you describe literally what you see um, around you. So something like the, uh, the old house that's uh, disintegrated into the salinity that's brought about by overclearing becomes this um, symbol of occupation, but also the fact that there's something gone wrong. There's something wrong, obviously, in that it decays and collapses too. 
The interesting thing is the title Pillars of Salt is a biblical image. So it's a European religious Christian background, and yet we're talking, as you've mentioned, about the heritage of Australia, the nature of Australia, the Indigenous. It's almost picking up on or is picking up on this clash of culture. Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing because that voice is always going to be a problem. And I try and investigate that problem and how how such a poetic voice can be used without being even more intrusive than the original colonisation and in the ongoing colonisation too. So the poems are always struggling and wrestling with that and trying to find a way of putting things that critiques, but at the same time is not trying to pretend it's not part of the problem. Because as um, you know, part of that legacy, and uh, I, I have a responsibility and a culpability, and I see my poetry as a kind of attempt to find the language of dealing with it. That is obviously um, the language I have and writing, which is English, but also problematize it. So all of these poems, the biblical references, for example, which you'll find especially in the poems of that period, um, are very much trying to wrestle with the issue of having brought being brought up um, in a particular religious space, um, then questioning that, as most people you know do at some point in their lives, and seeing that it can be misused in certain contexts. But also, um, the fact is, uh, the the actual symbolism and the visual references and so on of that uh, of the biblical language are really actually quite interesting. They're disturbing. They're bothering, but they're also really interesting. And uh, a lot of you know English language poetry, wrongly or rightly, has drawn on it. And um, so I'm obviously very conscious of that and use them. Now, you also appeal to other voices. You've got several poems in here entitled Via Urn Mally. And in many ways, that's an appeal to one of Australia's great literary hoaxes. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by Ern Malley. You know, I think he's uh, one of Australia's great poets. And uh, interestingly, those um, Ern via me or Ern imitation poems uh, were done as part of a collaborative thing. They're mine in there, but uh, John Tranter did some as well. And John Ashbury, the three of us um, back in the late 90s, um, sort of swapped messages and said, you know, let's, let's have a go at doing some. Yeah, a fascination for the um, strange language use that two relatively conservative poets could come together in their attempt to hoax and actually create such a, a wonderful, not only modernist, but basically postmodernist uh, uh, assemblage um, and montage of voices to make these incredible poems always interested me. Well, it speaks to the voice of a poem and whether there is something ineffable in a collection of words and phrases that goes in many ways beyond the poet themselves. Well, I totally, utterly believe in the ineffable. I believe in the ineffable in all senses. I'm a bit of a pantheist. Um, you know, I see sort of uh, eternity, existence and uh, quotation marks, God in everything uh, or in nothing, whichever way you want to look at it. I have this uh, genuine belief that we respect difference and we respect um, different belief systems and spiritualities, but I'm really interested in what the spirit behind something is, both uh, symbolically and metaphorically and also pragmatically. So in all of these poems, I'm really interested in what can't be said. 
in the onset. So even when you've got, say, a rural description describing uh, it might be you know, a fence post or it might be um, a tractor or it might be a salt scald, what I'm always looking for is what you can't write about it. And what you can't write about it can be quite disturbing and traumatic. Very often that always comes back in my writing to the issue of colonialism and the impact of colonialism and um, a kind of disrespecting that goes on to country and to land by the uh, colonising process inevitably, uh, which bothers me as it should. And um, that's always, I think, in the back of the poems is this disturbance uh, over, over presence, over my presence, over the presence of uh, what I'm part of. Well, interestingly, you raise that, your presence and your perspective and view, because you've written an afterwards uh, to this collection, acknowledgement of failure in making poems. In the past, so angry at injustice, I've made harsh images that I now understand placed cause over effect, that were insensitive in being obtuse. Grim irony doesn't help people if they only feel its raw elements. So this poem is devoid of images, devoid of figurative language, and yet am I still hiding behind patterns of words, blaming them for failing to speak out with all the respect I wish they could have? The challenge that a poet has in communicating what they really think or feel. Yeah, this, that statement is added and will be at the end of each of the three volumes because it has been my struggle and my frustration in my attempt to sort of um, look at the injustices of colonisation, the injustices of land damage, the injustices of environmental degradation. I've used whatever language I have. I've tried to uh, represent what's happened, also capture something of the ineffable, of which much I can't capture and is not mine to actually even discuss. But um, I also realise as time passes, language changes, and what I've written um, has obviously stayed in its time to some extent. So I felt the need to make that statement at the end, that some of the, say, language I use in earlier poems, but I'm actually just saying I'm aware that language changes and that uh, its usage changes and how we see and understand changes as context shift. The uh, politics, if you like, have remained pretty consistent for 40 years. I still had the same politics I have now I had back when I started writing. Like when I first started writing poetry, I was still um, involved in uh, rural activities that I absolutely despise now. Um, I was still uh, you know, doing things like hunting and, and stuff like this which as a vegan animal rights person of 36, 37 years now, I, of course, don't do and um, find very wrong outside of cultural specificity. And stopping doing that was very important to me. Now, that point of stopping is evident in this book. So I don't have any pro-hunting poems, of course. I have lots of anti-hunting poems. But um, that sensibility changed early on in my years um, that I then turn my back on so I don't want to be that kind of bloke. Um, that's not who I am. Uh, so poems track in what they say, but also in the language used, and maybe the only, only the poet ever knows that. Do you think then that the anthology, the co collection, shows your development as a poet and in what ways? Well... Put it this way, the earliest poems in there still had to stand my present day test, if you like, of what constitutes a poem I'd be proud of. 
So I've got nothing in there that I wouldn't stand by. But of course, as time goes by, experience goes more and more into the poems. I mean, you just accumulate experience. doesn't mean the younger experience is any less valid than an older experience. In some ways, it has a fresher engagement and the language is more vital. And I like that about early work of any poet. Um, but what happens as time goes by is you, you know, you get more uh, selective maybe in your language usage. Um, in other ways, you get more bold because you've increased the sort of the experience of language. And I think that's what actually happens across the, these kind of books. A kind of experience of language grows. There are more things being done with language. I think anyone reading it will notice that the very early poems are, are relatively um, straightforward. But, um, you know, it's also by the end of that volume, you've also got poems that in some ways hark back to the earlier poems because I'm constantly trying to look back at what I've done before and learn from an old self uh, and bring the old self and the new self together. So, yeah, poem, poetry writing is an ongoing learning experience. It's a, it's a living thing. It's organic. It's um, not fixed. And that's why I think we always have to be conscious that language changes. Well, you've collected them here in volume one, 1980 to 2005, The Ascension of Sheep. I think there's plenty to dip into in terms of a perspective on the Australian landscape, flora and fauna, in terms of approaches and styles and forms, an insight also then into your own development as a poet. And we can only wait then for the next volume to come out. So it's a University of Western Australia publishing release. Uh, it is John Kinsella, The Ascension of Sheep. So, John, thank you very much for talking with me today. A pleasure, David. Always a pleasure. And uh, thanks for caring about poetry and supporting it and having conversations about it. That's what poetry is. It's a conversation, isn't it? Well, there we go, Jan. Well, from poetry to the cutting of words in surgery. I've been fortunate that I haven't been to hospital many times, but when I have, I've been astounded by those who work there. Neela Janaki Ramanan knows firsthand about hospitals, but has written a fiction book titled The Registrar. Welcome, Neela. Thank you, Jan. Thanks for having me. Your book centres on Emma Swan. What has she achieved in her medical career so far? So Emma is in her late 20s. She is enthusiastic. She is ambitious. She has completed medical school. She has spent the first years working uh, as a doctor in a hospital. So the first year in a hospital is called an intern year where doctors are provisionally registered and they always work under supervision. And then over the next few years, they slowly get increasing independence. And Emma has survived those very early years and thrived in them such that she has been selected onto a specialist training program. She's also fitted in marriage and a lot of very good sex with Shamsi. <laughs> what does he want in their relationship now? So Shamsi is her husband. They have been together since they were both at university and he has always known that uh, she has significant aspirations in her own medical career. He's a lawyer. He's trying to navigate the professional world of 
competition and promotion himself, but he also really wants a family. So he's a man who's trying to have it all, I guess. The registrar is the title of the book, but also a particular position in medicine. What does what does this entail? Yeah. So a registrar is a specialist in training. So whether that is a hospital-based specialist, such as a surgeon or a physician or an obstetrician, um, or a community-based specialist, such as a general practitioner, um, all of these medical specialties involve a period of training within that specialty itself. It's very specific. And those training years are known as your registrar years. So each year, it's a different hospital with different surgeons, so you can get as much training as possible. And I like that that's called the annual medical migration. But Emma finds that at her handover, there's not only information she doesn't get, but there's other things like pages and ID. And you think, this is very sloppy. It's remarkable because, you know, this novel is fiction. It's not a memoir, but it is written to be true to life. And these are certainly the experiences of a lot of doctors when they move to to a hospital for the first time that things that you would expect to be organised before you arrive often aren't. It's not even that uncommon for your contract to not be given to you until a couple of weeks after you've started. Well, this is what Emma found, that she didn't have ID just to get through the doors for a while. She's working at the Mount. It's a training hospital. And Emma's father was an eminent surgeon there with many career highlights. Being a A training hospital, does a good surgeon make for a good trainer? In medicine particularly, which is in a lot of ways a trade, people can be very good at their craft and not very good at passing it on. And, of course, we all teach as we have been taught. And so if you're part of a profession where the history of teaching is by shame and humiliation, then that is a crutch that many others will then lean towards as well. There's a quote here, dripping derision on those below. That is evident in a lot of the conversations that go on. One of the other interns, Daniel, had worked with Emma's father and said to Emma, I'm glad you're not like him. There's also something else that Emma has to be aware of, a different type of harassment. What's that? So harassment, uh, you know, sexual harassment in particular and assault is something that a lot of women in medicine do face. Uh, Every time they do a survey of women within that craft group, something like 30 to 50% of women report that they have had unwanted advances made upon them in the workplace. And perhaps this is not so different from a lot of professions that are outside of medicine. Well, there's another registrar there, Steve, older than her. Quote, he looks me up and down, lingering slightly too long on my chest. And then there's Bill that she has to operate with. I try to avoid Bill patting me on my back. The frequency with which he misses and pats my bottom can't be an accident. But surgeons don't work alone, and this book shows the importance of other fields, and anaesthesia and plastic surgery, and, of course, nursing. Are nurses valued and treated equally? 
I wish that nurses were valued and treated equally. I personally value nurses and treat them, I hope, perhaps better than I treat some of my own colleagues, if I'm honest, because they are the absolute backbone of our health system. But at a systemic and structural level, I think we have to admit as a profession that not everyone sees nursing colleagues as the colleagues that they are. And and do all nurses really have FAD cards? <laughs> that was actually a term that my anaesthetist and I made up one day as we were talking about this novel. Fad cards are absolutely a thing. They do record what instruments we like to use for what operations. Uh, but we may have taken some creative license with what that term stands for. <laughs> have to read the book to find out. There is so much pressure about making the correct decision, marking up patients, rechecking and the surgery itself. All of this with very little sleep. Why, why can't mm. registrars get decent sleeping hours? It's complicated. A hospital requires a certain number of staff in order to meet the demands. And the profession needs a certain number of specialists. And for specialists in training, they also need access to training opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so if you have too many trainees in one particular hospital, then you might erode their training experience and therefore not get specialists who are sufficiently experienced when they finish their training. And so if you start to erode training, then perhaps you need to extend the length of the training. But as we can see, uh, specialist training already has so many impacts on people's lives and childbearing and family and caring responsibilities and everything else. And so it's this perpetual tension between trying to train the right number of specialists, trying to make sure that each of those trainees has a good training experience that isn't too long or too short, but also meeting the service needs of the hospital. So actually being able to treat the patients that come through. And that is a wicked problem. And right now in Australia, and to be honest, in most parts of the world, the balance falls on the side of not quite enough doctors to meet the need. And so everyone just pulls their socks up and work, works harder. Well, the day starts at 6.30 for the 7 o'clock rounds and then there's old, new and emergency patients that have to be dealt with, then the surgery, then the clinic at the end. It just goes on and on and on. So the caseloads seem ridiculous. We read of Emma's physical and mental fatigue. How's this playing out with her private life, with her lovely Shamsi? It's very difficult to maintain relationships with those kinds of work hours because you're just not around. And of course, partners, friends, family have expectations, not only of how much time they wish to spend with a doctor, who is to them not a doctor, but rather a wife or a sister or a daughter, but also the quality of time that they get from that person. And so it's not just the absence in terms of the hours worked, it's the absence in terms of the mental load and the intellectual capacity that is taken up by what happens at work and what has happened and what needs to happen tomorrow. And so this can create cracks, fissures between relationships and cause strain and breakdowns. 
And then there's her mentor at work, David. He holds an important key to her future being research projects so Emma can get international placement. David is a fairly typical sort of surgeon in many ways. He is brilliant. He is charming. He cares deeply for Emma. He probably cares quite deeply about her future career. But also there is an element of perhaps what he can get out of it as well and perhaps misunderstanding a professional admiration and respect for something more. There is power, there is passion, there is intellectual connection, there is isolation from your normal family and friends. The behaviour on the part of senior people can almost border on something like grooming. And so the other adult in the relationship is in a structurally less powerful position So on page 299, this relationship between David and Emma has sort of come to a head where David has made his intentions known. So I let David kiss me. I let him lay me down. I let him remove my clothes. And I don't even check if he has a condom because I had contraception implanted when I was an intern with Big Dreams. And afterwards, I let him hold me while I contemplate Andy's rescued plant thriving in the dusty corner. It doesn't sound much passion in that, does there? But we should mention Andy now. Andy is Emma's brother and he Mm. is just about to sit for the exam. What's this exam? So at some point in specialist training, in surgery, it is at the end of training, uh, there is a big exam. And the examination is usually some combination of a written exam as well as an oral viva type exam, uh, which for most medical specialties involves patients coming in and acting as models. It is fraught with stress. It is expensive. It is usually only held once or twice a year. And it usually accompanies a failure rate of somewhere between 30 and 50% of candidates. And so the standards, as we would all reasonably expect, are high. But the way in which the exam is structured and the way in which trainees are taught can sometimes be quite inhumane. Yes. There is a saying, the pen is mightier than the sword. But in your acknowledgements, you write, Quote, it's an honour to wield a pen as well as a scalpel. Sometimes I'm not sure which is sharper. And I think your writing of this fiction is the way that you're hoping to bring around change. Would that be correct? Yes, I think so. So on to page 268, uh, Brenda, who is a senior administrator at the hospital, uh, has just held a wellness session for all of the doctors. And Daphne, who is another doctor uh, who is friends with Emma, she berates Brenda for the misplaced way in which this session has been run. Brenda, it's up to you how much you take our welfare seriously. Daphne holds her ground under Brenda's withering gaze. We've sat in meeting after meeting telling you what we need is better staffing, reliable parking, safe hours, appropriate teaching, better supervision and support, adequate sleep and meal breaks. And all you've offered is fruit and decorative plants and lectures 
And now, whale meditation. <laughs> that whale meditation, it didn't go over well. Um, look, good fiction writing has suspense, and it's here in each operation, from bunions and broken wrists to replacing a hip, amputating a leg, and the importance of time when a broken arm blocks an artery. Good fiction writing also has characters we can empathise with. There's Emma, but there's also Jackie. Lovely Jackie. Jackie who lives in the country. Jackie who has discovered that she has a pain in her leg and has discovered that that comes from a mass that is growing there and who comes to the mount for treatment. Oh, dear. Emma's brother says, there are shitty moments in our career. It was such a book. Is medicine a caring profession or a cutthroat culture? Neela Janaki Ramanan has a woman facing many obstacles while training to become a surgeon in the registrar. Neela, thank you. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another it week. It does. It does. Two very, very different books. Very different and very full program today. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no time for chatting, David. No, indeed not. <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.